Hello and welcome to episode 110 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by David Lennon. David is the national baseball writer for Newsday. You can give him a follow on Twitter at DP Lennon. David, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me, Ross. Well, I wanted to get into your Hall of Fame ballot. We'll do that later. But at first, I want to talk about what the Yankees and Mets have been up to this offseason. The Yankees were aggressive early. They traded for James Paxton. They re-signed uh, Jay Happ recently. What else do you think the Yankees are going to do here? Well, they have Manny Machado rolling into town for his uh, free agent tour after being in uh, Chicago and, and before heading to Philadelphia. So, you know, Machado has always kind of been on their radar. It seemed like an obvious fit when Didi Gregorius uh, needed Tommy John surgery and was going to be out for for at least half and probably a little bit more of the coming season. So I, I think that was the big name. You know, we think of the Yankees as certainly big game hunters. And uh, with Stanton last year, it was a little bit of a surprise. And I think Machado was the thing they really have their eye on right now. And uh, it, it depends, I think, where the price goes. I'm not quite sure they want to go up to, to $300 million plus uh, for another player uh, like, like they did with Stanton. So they got it around 265 But uh, it's an obvious fit for them. Uh, I think unless the, t- uh, the couple other teams involved with him really blow it out of the water, I think there's a pretty good shot that, that Machado could wind up in the Bronx. Do you think they had interest in Machado before the Didi injury? I do. Uh, you know, I think there was some, you know, uncertainty over Andujar and, and, and where his long-term future uh, could be. I know there was talk of seeing if they could move him to first base, maybe the outfield, because they were concerned about his glove at, at third base. As we know, Machado is, a, is an excellent defender on the, on the left side uh, of the infield. So that was attractive to them. Um, but I, I think the DD thing, you know, certainly for us in New York, as, as part of the, the reporters that cover this team, our antenna immediately went up and we thought for sure uh, Machado was going to be in play there. But, you know, Ross, an interesting thing with the Yankees now, which we never kind of experienced uh, a while back, was, you know, another influx of young players uh, that are making an impact for them. Uh, whether you're talking Glaver Torres, whether you're talking Andrew Hart at third base, uh, some of the young pitchers coming up. Um, so it's a little bit more of a dilemma for them. I mean, do they kind of give up on a guy like Andujar and move him in another deal or move him position-wise to get somebody like Machado? Or do they, they feel like they can stick it out? I mean, have they seen enough from him that he can be a, a real star uh, at third base? Arguably, he was the rookie of the year without Shohei Atani being around, so... Andrew Hart, his name has popped up a lot in, in trade discussions this offseason. Do you think there's anything to that? And I guess the second part of that is, do the Yankees view Andahar as an infielder long-term, or is a move to the outfield more likely for him? I've heard such conflicting uh, word inside the organization on that. I mean, I think there's a faction that, that think they could do better defensively at third. Uh, others think he still has room to grow. I know he's been doing a lot of work on that already this off season. Um, and, and he still is young. I mean, it, we, we tend to want these younger players to be five tool stars from the moment they arrive in the major leagues. And, it, you know, sometimes it, it goes that way, but there's a lot of anxiousness to get these guys to, to that place. And sometimes it takes a little bit more time to develop uh, at the majors. I mean, it's a big jump, no matter where you're coming from. 
to, to excel in the majors. So uh, it, it's tough to say where this is going to go. I, I feel like they'll probably hold on to Andujar going into this coming season. If they get Machado, I think they can use him at short. Um, I, I think it's worth taking more of a look at him. The one caveat I will say, Ross, on that is that if they have a chance uh, at a guy like a Corey Kluber uh, or a Madison Baumgartner, I think Andohar is going to be a real big chip in any kind of deal like that. Uh, and, and in that case, you wind up seeing him move to another club. The Yankees have uh, two of their key relievers are free agents in David Robertson and Zach Britton. Do you think they're looking to bring either of those guys back or are they looking for additional bullpen help elsewhere? It seems like right now that they feel like they're going to be priced out of Britain only because Britain is looking for a closing job. Uh, so that's really not a name I've heard about coming back. But Robertson, I think, remains in play uh, as a guy that could come back here. Um, so I, I think those two guys, Britain, I would say no. Robertson, I would say it might be a coin flip uh, right now. I mean, there's value in a guy like Robertson beyond uh, his skill set, only because when you're the Yankees or even the Mets, you like a guy who's had the familiarity in New York that you know that can perform here, um, that can deal with the pressure here. And I know we talk about that a lot, but it's a real thing. Uh, And I'm not saying that other people who haven't pitched in Cleveland and San Francisco and Seattle can't come here and do well. Uh, It's just that, that that's a wild card. You know, that's kind of an unknown quantity when you bring those type of guys into New York. Um, So there is a comfort level uh, when there is a guy that you've seen already do it here. Going back to Machado briefly, do you think if the Yankees were to get Machado this year, there's a need for him at shortstop with Didi being out, but do you think they would view him long-term as a shortstop or as a third baseman? I would think at that point with Didi, um, they could move him to third. I mean, Didi has played an excellent shortstop for them. You know, he's an important part of the lineup, too. I mean, he's a, a, left, a, a solid lefty bat that they really don't have. I mean, you bring Machado in here, he's a right-handed hitter, obviously. And it's a very right-handed lineup. Um, and say what you will, I mean, the Red Sox brought Nathan Avaldi back, who's a pretty lethal pitcher uh, against right-handed batters. Uh, so I think with Didi, um, it's tough to say just because he is so far from coming back right now. Uh, I think he's an important part of that lineup. Uh, They can always make moves with him if they do get Machado uh, to see where he winds up beyond this season. Uh, um, But I think right now, yeah, I mean, where you would, what you would wind up doing is probably getting Machado at third, figuring out what to do with Andahar, and then letting Didi come back at shortstop at some point uh, whenever he's healthy. Gary Sanchez struggled last season. He struggled a bit at the plate by his standards. And, you know, we're at a dark period for catchers here, but it was not the best year for him. And defensively, he seemed to struggle as well. There were some rumors earlier that they may look to move him for Real Muto. Uh, I don't know if that's going to happen. What can they do with Sanchez to improve his overall play, especially his defense? He has got a bad rap. I mean, it's easy to, you know, look at him and and, and see. He's he's battled a, a number of injuries. Uh, during this time, you know, some we've known about, some we haven't. Uh, there's certainly been some bad optics with him, whether you've talked about, you know, not running hard to first base, whether it wasn't hustling after a, a pass ball. Again, those were things that were kind of influenced by injuries. Uh, my time around him and the times I've been around the Yankees, I think he's worked extremely hard uh, at improving defensively. 
Um, you know, his arm has always been a big part of his game. That wasn't quite as good, uh, but we found out, you know, he was dealing with shoulder, shoulder problems. So, you know, there's always some things behind the scenes. We're, we're quick to, to rip him for his defense and how he wasn't going to be able to handle the position. You know, would they move him to first base? Did he have to DH more? Um, Cashman has said that Sanchez is his catcher. Um, and that's the part, like you mentioned, Ross, it is a dark period uh, for catchers, certainly offensively. I mean, if you can get Sanchez back to being that offensive player again, to be that, you know, 35 homer plus guy behind the plate, that's a huge advantage, you know, when you match up with other teams to have that kind of offensive player at, at a non-offensive position, as we know, a deficiency uh, in offense behind the plate. So I think it's far too early to give up on Sanchez again, like we talked about with Andujar. He's shown what he can do uh, at this level. You just have to make sure uh, that with the pitching staff that they've put together, uh, that he doesn't become a, you know, a liability for that as well. And I think we've seen some things from him defensively where he can be better. So I'd like to see him at full strength and fully healthy before I can really say or label him as a, as a poor defensive catcher. Luis Severino was great in the first half of the season last year, and then he struggled a bit after the All-Star break. It came out later in the season that he was tipping pitches. Were the Yankees not aware of that as it was happening? I think they were. Um, you know, as you know, teams don't want to cop to, uh, you know, talk about tipping. You know, it's a very kind of a lot of subterfuge uh, involved with that. You know, they don't want to let on what they're looking for. Uh, so... You know, teams, listen, the, the video technology and the way you can break down pitchers now, that you can dissect them uh, to the finest points. And you can pick up the most minute things that even the sharpest eye probably couldn't identify 20 years ago. So it's a constant battle. I mean, if you have a guy that, that looks like he's doing something subtle, whether it's a back foot move, whether it's a glove tilt, whether it's zipping up his shoulder a little early, whether he's squeezing the ball in his glove, uh, you know, that there's any number of things that could happen with that. Partly, I think for Severino, I, I think there was some exhaustion there based on what he did in the first half of the year. I mean, he was so good uh, and it exerted so much effort to get to that point. I think some of it was a little bit of fatigue that he didn't even kind of admit to later. Uh, the tipping thing, uh, I think it's going to be something to keep looking at going forward. Um, you can see how he can become a much more ordinary pitcher when you know what's coming, uh, when you, you can fight, when you can kind of stay off that nasty slider that he has. So um, it's going to be an ongoing thing with him. Um, and I think we probably haven't heard the last of it because I know we'll keep asking about it. Shifting over to the other team in New York, the Mets have done a lot of interesting things. I mean, starting with who they hired to be their general manager, Brody Van Wagen, and mm-hmm. he came in, he pulled off the Cano-Diaz deal at I'm curious from a New York perspective, if you think that was the best use of resources, if he had that money to spend, do you think Cano and Diaz were the best use of it? I came out as in favor of the trade when it did happen, only because as someone that's been around the Mets for a while, I I kind of applauded his efforts to improve the team for this coming year. You know, I thought 2019 was extremely important. You're talking about a team that's coming off a pair of uh, 70 plus win seasons uh, the fan base was pretty uh, restless, bordering on despair uh, following this club. So, you know, what they did was, was, fill up a, was fill a huge need for their team in getting Edwin Diaz here, uh, getting arguably the best closer uh, in the league from a year ago. 
uh, and a young one with a lot of team control. I thought that was extremely important for them, especially with the pitching staff, the, the rotation they put together. And Cano, you know, we'll see. I mean, do I expect him to be an all-star second baseman for the next five years? No, of course not. Do I expect him even to get one all-star caliber season out of him? That's questionable, too. What I think he can do uh, is bring a lefty bat in, in that lineup, be a reliable number three hitter, um, and, you know, be a guy that has to, that can provide some protection there and can provide some pop. I think he can still play second base. That was another big hole for them. Um, so, listen, Brody had to take on Cano. He felt that he was familiar enough with him, that he felt good enough bringing him back to New York. Um, so we'll have to defer to his judgment on that one. But for the guys they gave up, you know, Kalanick was not a guy that was going to be able to help this team uh, anytime soon, probably not in the next two years for sure. Uh, Justin Dunn, you know, I'm not really putting him in the, the very top star category. And as far as uh, Gershon Batista, other teams do like him. Uh, he has serious control issues, <laughs> despite throwing in the high 90s, which teams will always take a chance on. But as far as established major league talent, and what they have to get done in 2019, uh, I think it was a good move for the Mets. They just recently signed Wilson Ramos, catcher. He can hit. Not a long-term contract, two years, $19 million. I like the signing for the Mets. What do you think? I do, too. JT Romuto is an exceptional player, uh, an all-star catcher. Obviously, we all know that, what, what comes with him. But as, as things got kind of crazy out in Las Vegas, and we started you know, talking to people and hearing more about you know, not just Nimmo or not just Conforto or not just Rosario. Now we're talking about three-way deals involving Noah Syndergaard. Uh, that got into a bad place as far as I was concerned. It, it was starting to give up too many major league resources uh, for a team that doesn't have a lot of them. So at that point, I was kind of like, you know what? Go out and sign a free agent catcher. There's a couple of them out there. You can do well enough with that. Save your young major league resources. If you can't get Riamuto for a price that you like, then pivot and do the next best thing. And, and I think Ramos, certainly a reliable player, like you mentioned offensively, a little bit concerned about the health issues. You know, anybody that's been around the Mets and know that health uh, is always a major concern uh, with anybody in their organization. So a little worried about that, but getting Ramos on a two-year deal uh, is in a good spot for them. And again, a guy that definitely improves significantly uh, what their team can do in 2009. Do you think Syndergaard is off the block now? I don't. Um, only because, Ross, when, when guys start to get mentioned in trades, you've already crossed the bridge. You know, you've already come to a point where you haven't told teams that, no, we're not We're going to talk about Syndergaard. He's off the table. It's a non-starter. He's in the discussion, which... You know, teams are going to want to trade for Syndergaard, and they're probably going to give you something you want. So I'm a little leery of the fact that they've been tossing them out there. Uh, you know, it's not just like throwing darts. You know, once you mention somebody's name, uh, they become into play. Now, will they trade them? Trade him? I doubt it now. Now that they've got a catcher, um, I, I think it becomes less pressing. Riamudo was one of their biggest targets, so now that he's off the table... I think Syndergaard will be pitching for them, but, uh, you know, Syndergaard is a guy with three years of team control. Um, so we'll see how this year goes. He certainly could be a guy that if they, if they need to sign DeGrom long-term and they certainly do, 
they may not feel like they have the money to hold on to Syndergaard as well. I look at the Mets roster, and I think they improved their team. I think that their roster in 2019 mm-hmm. is better than it was in 2018 and certainly in 2017. They will get Cespedes back at some point, too, and that'll make them better. That's all good. But there's part mm-hmm. of me that this reminds me of what the Padres did when they first hired A.J. Preller. You remember they traded for Kimbrell and Justin Upton and James Shields and Matt Kemp? And they made all these additions, and people thought, oh, they're going to be a contender now, and they just weren't. Do you think that's possible, the Mets just fall on their face here? Um, I don't think there was quite as much furniture shuffling with the Mets, what they've done so far, as there was in San Diego, uh, with the names that you just rattled off. I mean, what Preller did was certainly go for a big-time talent grab, maybe without kind of thinking where all those pieces were going to fit or how they were going to mesh together. I think with the Mets, they have a good nucleus put together here. You know, they have a rotation that's performed well, again, when healthy, uh, has a chance to be uh, certainly one of the best rotations in the National League, if not in baseball, if they have all those guys lined up uh, and pitching well. Um, What they've done is they've filled specific needs in in spots that they absolutely had to improve, closer, second base, uh, and catcher. Now, if they can get a center fielder, now that's another big spot they could improve at. They still have Juan Lagares, obviously, who was an excellent defender, just hasn't stayed healthy or shown himself to be much of an offensive player at the plate. So I think what Brody's done is not quite as haphazard and just tried to sign and trade for everybody that he could. What he's done, they've identified spots that certainly needed upgrading while still maintaining the chemistry with the young players they have there. Uh, and also with the, the rotation being solid. So the, I think there's a foundation there where these pieces are just going to come in and help rather than kind of cause a little bit like chaos like they did in uh, San Diego. Bullpen pieces are next for them, you think? Yeah, I mean, they already went out and got Familia, um, which again, uh, you know, some Mets fans may cringe. Uh, you know, it's seeing him come back again, they don't remember the best of times. With Familia, but he's, you know, in a setup role, I think that's an excellent signing. Um, we've seen where the market can go for that. You know, three years, 30 million isn't what I thought it would maybe cost to sign a Jerry's Familia. But I think the Mets, again, like the fact that he's performed well in flushing before. Uh, he's familiar with the territory here. And setting up for Diaz, I think, is a great spot for him. I, I'd love for the Mets to go out and get another guy to just keep spending and go roll the dice with an Andrew Miller as far as a left-handed guy in there, but I don't think they're going to be players anymore uh, in the bigger type relief arms. I think they're going to try to see what kind of falls out of the tree between roster shuffling with other teams and maybe even wait until spring training for that. Yeah, not a lefty, but I'm very curious where Adam Adovino plays with both both New York teams is I think he's a guy that's really good and he's going to have all of the good teams interested in him. I think that the Astros, the Red Sox, the Yankees, uh, the Phillies, because they have money, the Mets, I think all of these teams are going to be interested in Adovino. So it'll be interesting to see where he lands. Yeah, I think so. I mean, with Adovino, I'm curious to see where, you know, is is closing games important to him or or is he fine being in more of a, a late inning role? Because as we know with the Yankees, that's where they would want him. Um, we're seeing a lot more flexibility with teams, how they want to use the bullpens, about who closes on what day, what the matchups are. So when you got like Adovino, who certainly has, you know, has the ability to be a shutdown closer, um, I'd like to see him with the Yankees. I think he'd be a target for them, especially being a, a, a local guy. Uh, but they're, they can't offer him to close games, that's for sure. 
before we switch over to the Hall of Fame, give me a, a prediction as to where Bryce Harper signs and for how much, and as to where Machado signs and for how much. Oh, well, I mean, I think that I, where I was joking during the winter meetings that it was going to be a case of like Dan Lozano, Machado's agent, and uh, Scott Boris, Harper's agent, just kind of staring at each other, you know, waiting to see who blinks first. So whoever signs first, the next guy can just sign for a million dollars more and, and say they basically won the competition there. Um, I think Machado winds up with the Yankees. Um, I think he probably winds up a little north of 250. Um, I don't know how they're going to structure that. Uh, I don't know where the opt-outs are going to be with that. Um, but I think it's just too much of a, uh, of a fit. And now that the Yankees are actually courting him, uh, I think it's a place that he wants to play in too. So I see that Harper, um, I really always thought Philadelphia all along. I know people are saying the White Sox right now. Forrest is really going to push the, the envelope on that one. Uh, I think that's a case where you could see him, you know, get past Stanton and maybe get into the 330 range. And I, I think Philly's the team to, to keep an eye on for that one. Real quick about Brody Van Wagenen. Do you think he took a pay cut to become the general manager of the Mets? I, I would have to say yes. I think significantly. Well, Brody downplayed it. I mean, Brody isn't an agent unto himself. I mean, he's not like Scott Boris. You know, he doesn't run Boris Corp, and he's not the main guy. He was a, an employee of CAA, which is a company which they, you know, pay agents accordingly, also makes a commission on his guys. But I'm not quite sure if that commission just gets dumped back into a pool and split up. So, he did. I'm sure he did take a pay cut. Uh, I don't know. I think what he's making from the Mets, I, I feel like, is more. I'm trying to think of the last contract I saw for him, but I, I think I thought it was maybe a five million dollar deal for what he wound up signing for. Maybe it was for four years. Um, I don't remember what it was. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think he did take a pay cut to to do that. He was what you would call a super agent, so I, I think he did. Let's switch focus to the Hall of Fame. You had a change in philosophy with your voting. This year, you voted for Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, and Mariano Rivera. You dropped Edgar Martinez, Kurt Schilling, and Mike Mussina. Tell me why. I wrote a column about it in, in Sunday's Newsday explaining, you know, it was funny that I had Newsday had printed uh, my ballot before I had a chance, before they decided to publish explanations for it. So it, it certainly caused a little bit of a ripple. Um, and as I explained in the column, Ross, is that I started voting for the Hall of Fame 13 years ago. I've been doing this for, for quite some time. And from the start, I always kind of wondered what the Hall of Fame was. I mean, were we talking about a situation where we were picking the top 1% uh, of players to play the game uh, and enshrine them, the real elite of the elite, to go in? Or were we kind of seeing who was already in? and trying to see where the bar was set and crunching the numbers and trying to see where this next crop of guys, did they pass that test or did they fall below that line? And really that's how I had done it, you know, for the past 13 years or so and, and, and went through and, you know, filled out my six or seven or eight names on there and felt comfortable with that. And more often than not, by the time of those players, 10 year runs, uh, they wound up in the hall of fame. Um, but after this past week in Las Vegas, and again, as I explained, this was not a knock on Harold Baines at all. But when I saw that the committee, and I don't know if your listeners are familiar with these committees that are set up every year uh, by the Hall of Fame, 16 member panels of Hall of Famers themselves, executives, players, and, and a few media members, 
you know, they have kind of an ad hoc committee to vote on the players that kind of fell through the cracks. So when they elected Harold Baines, and I believe he got the minimum 12 out of 16 uh, votes in that panel, you know, that kind of made me wonder. We we're kind of being steered back into that gray area that I was always thinking of. And, you know, Baines, when he was on the ballot for the writers, you know, never got more than, I think it was 6.1% uh, of the vote, which he topped out at, and, and what the threshold to get into the Hall of Fame is 75. So you can see he fell well, well, well below that. But when I saw the Baines verdict, I was kind of like, you know what? I don't really kind of want to deal in that gray area anymore. You know, now that you put Baines in, does the bar start to get lower? Another guy you have to compare people to that starts to kind of sink it a little bit more. Um, again, a panel decided to vote Baines in, then he's deserving as far as I'm concerned, if, if they made that decision. So what I decided to do was I looked at the ballot this year and instead of going with the guys that I felt was kind of a second tier group that I had voted for last year, I switched, I switched. I went with guys who I thought were the, the very top. And in Rivera, in Bonds, and Clemens, I thought those were the guys that fit into that criteria. Yeah, the Baines thing was stunning, and it was it, his admission was a mistake. And every Hall of Fame is full of four types of players. There's the all-time greats, the players who were the best ever to play the game or the best ever at their position. There's the obvious rank-and-file Hall of Famers. There's borderline guys, and then there were mistakes. And unfortunately, Baines was a mistake. <laughs> Obviously, I think the goal is to get all the ones and twos in. You want the obvious Hall of Famers, and you want the sort of rank-and-file Hall of Famers in, too, the all-time greats and the obvious Hall of Famers. I think part of the reason why you got some flack on Twitter, I mean, you mentioned the timing that they didn't release your explanation until a few days later. That didn't help your cause. But uh, I think part of the reason is that I think people see, myself included, Musina, Schilling, and Edgar in that second group of obvious Hall of Famers, even if they're not the best ever at their position. Uh, Musina ranks, on baseball reference, 58th in career wins above replacement. Schilling is 65. I think Martinez is somewhere around 110. You know, 1% of 18,000 is 180. So that's still, those guys still seem to be comfortable in that group, but you, even with them, said not enough. Yeah, I mean, like, like I had put on last year's ballot, I mean, those were guys that I did at that time, uh, you know, felt like they made it over the line. You know, were they online with Clemens and Bonds and Rivera? Uh, no, I didn't quite, I didn't put them in that class, but I felt like you mentioned, they fell into that second group. Now, when I thought about it this year again, it's tough. It was a tough thing to do because I had already put them on the ballot last year. But my rationale for it was, this is something I've been thinking of for years now about switching to this more kind of small hall mentality. I just didn't wake up on Thursday of this week and decide to go that route. And what Baines kind of did was nudge me toward that. And once I'd made that decision, I couldn't say, well, you know what? Why don't I just ride it out with Edgar Martinez, Schilling, and Mussina, and three or four years or five years from now, when those guys are off, I'll, I'll go to vote the way that I feel like I should vote now. So I understand why people think that's such a puzzling or, if I want to put it, moronic thing to do. Um, but listen, Ross, I think Edgar Martinez is going to backstroke into Cooperstown when the results are announced uh, in late January. He was already at 70% last year. Um, and I think the Baines thing is going to do nothing but help his chances uh, when people see Baines and DH as well. You know, I think Martinez will 
skating beyond that. We've seen in Schilling a little bit of a tougher case. I mean, these are guys where, you know, 40% um, of the voters didn't give them Hall of Fame votes last year. So if I'm on the wrong side of history and voting this way, Ross, well, then, then so be it. You know, they would, they would be voted in the Hall of Fame and they'll certainly be deserving. I think most people that follow the game closely would have to acknowledge that the three people I did vote for are slam dunk Hall of Famers. Uh, if I didn't put people in that did deserve to be in that next tier, they will get in. Uh, the process will be borne out. Um, but like you mentioned, it just it, making that switch for me uh, at this time <laughs> was a little bit of a, a painful on my personal PR front, I would say. I mean, Edgar, it's his last year. Was that the hardest one to drop considering it's his last year and he's so close? Yeah, but listen, one vote is going to come down to, I think, 0.25%, actually less, maybe 0.21 of a percent. So my prediction right now, just based on the way, and and we all track the way these things go from year to year, you see that people jump. I would say he would get a minimum of 80. I bet you he gets 80% uh, of the vote when it does come out, at least. But that's the other part that I don't get, Ross. Is that if this way to vote is so wrong, how does some, if somebody's a Hall of Famer, then how does it take 10 years <laughs> to come to that realization? You know, I mean, I know there are some ballot dynamics at work. You can only pick 10 each year, and maybe a person doesn't fall into it. Maybe that person gets edged out by a very big class. But I, that part of the system, I don't really get. And I've been guilty of it too. Well, I, I actually, I don't think I was. I think people I voted for, I've stayed consistent with from the time I started voting. Bonds and Clemens, I never switched. As soon as they were eligible, I voted for them. Plenty of other people kind of waited. I don't know if they're waiting to see which way the wind was blowing on it or what, and then added them. So I, the process is, is an imperfect one, uh, as I've mentioned. So in the end, you just hope the best, the most deserving people get in. And so far, as far as the writers are concerned, it's usually worked out that way. Is this your permanent philosophy now, or is this what you plan to do going forward, is the uh, extreme small hall voting? I do. Bonds and Clemens will certainly carry me through on that, uh, because I, I really think there's a need for them to get into the Hall of Fame. I know the people that run the Hall of Fame probably think otherwise. <laughs> um, but as you look at the ballots looking ahead, I, I think there will be... You know, if they're not Bonds and Clemens caliber type, caliber type of players, I think they'll still be extreme standouts. Um, so that is the philosophy I will have going forward. Um, each ballot can be a different case, uh, depending how you look at people moving forward. So I can't predict how, you know, what my ballot's going to look like for the next five years, but I, I do look at it in a different way that I think provides a little more, a little more, a little more clarity going forward. Well, I do want to ask you about a couple guys who are coming up on the ballot, just because I think it'll help with the classifications. Next year is Derek Jeter's year. Mm -hmm. He seems like an obvious one. Uh, I imagine that he'll get Mm -hmm. your vote. Uh, There's other guys that are coming on, like Bobby Abreu. He's probably going to get 5%, to be honest, but he had a really good career. Uh, The year after that is really interesting, because there's there's no one who's going to get in. The newcomers on that ballot are Burley, Hudson, and Torrey Hunter. Those guys may not even get five percent, so that's going to be where you see. A lot of, <laughs> right. That's where you're going to be see a lot of movement. I mean, that's where Viscal could see a big surge, Schilling could see a big surge. We don't know what's going to happen with Bonds and Clemens there. That will be their penultimate year. How many people at that point just say we've made them wait long enough? And then the year after that, I think that is Bonds and Clemens's last year, and it will be A Rod and David Ortiz's first year. Do you plan to vote <laughs> right. for them as well? <laughs> right. 
I'll tell you what, it, it's going to come down to really splitting some things. Ross, one of the philosophies that I, I've done, and listen, with the, with the PED stuff, it's really difficult trying to figure out uh, who should be considered and who shouldn't. What I've tried to do is if you've been disciplined by Major League Baseball, suspended, uh, I kind of disqualify you. Uh, now people would say, well, with all the stuff at Bonds and Clemens, and I'll say, well, I have to draw the line somewhere. And there wasn't a policy in place, and Major League Baseball chose not to discipline them. So A-Rod's going to be a tough case. I mean, he was the most notorious <laughs> PED offender in the history of the game, perhaps in professional sports, uh, suspended for an entire year. So certainly off the jump, uh, I'm going to have to think a heck of a lot more about that and see what ha- develops over the next few years. Ortiz is a guy that tested positive on the survey testing. Uh, again, wasn't suspended, though. Uh, so it, it's, you know what, I, I, I hate to, I hate to hedge on this one, but I, I think in this case, it's going to have to see how the next couple of years play out and really kind of, kind of chew it over before being able to, uh, to check that box. Give me some of the names that people have called you over the past few days. <laughs> well, a lot of it has come from Seattle. So as much as I enjoy Seattle, it's going to be a tough place to visit. Certainly, if Edgar doesn't get in, again, I think Edgar Martinez will get in based on the way the numbers are trending. Uh, but the, the parts that the names you can probably figure out, uh, a lot of, you know, indecent acts doing to myself as well. But the other, the other part of that is I find it interesting, Ross, that people's first reaction when you don't vote the way they want you to is to take away your vote. And it's like... It doesn't make any sense. What's the point of an election if you just try to eliminate everybody that doesn't vote the way you want them to, you know? So that was the overwhelming reaction. You know, take away his vote. You don't deserve the vote. Never mind the fact that I voted for three people who deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I, I just think that reaction, what I like is to talk about people, to talk with people with different opinions. You know, I like the debate. I, I respect other people's ballots and their reasoning behind it, even if I don't agree with it. And it should be the same uh, with other people. So it disappoints me when I do hear from fans that, that say, take away your vote, take away your vote, take away your vote, or you're just doing this for attention. And listen, that's not the case. I mean, my job as a columnist and as a national writer is to provide informed opinion, uh, educated opinion on things. Um, which I try to do. The Hall of Fame is not part of my job. It's not what Newsday pays me for. Uh, it's something the Hall of Fame asks writers to do that have had 10 years of service in the BBWAA. So, you know, the, the stuff, the flack that you get and, and the harassment that you get from it, <laughs> it is, it, it's not really worth anything uh, to me. What, what I like to do it as, as somebody who has covered and, and studied baseball for a long time, uh, it's something that, you know, I guess a, a privilege is one way to look at it, but, you know, I think it's doing a, a service for the hall of fame and, um, you know, hopefully you, you, the bottom line is hopefully that all the voters spend time to sit down and do it in a genuine untainted way. You know, I don't vote for players that were friends of mine necessarily. I mean, if they're not deserving, you know, I don't vote for players that I've written books with. I don't vote for players because, uh, my boss says I have to, you know, this is an independent, uh, situation where I sit down 
and make the best decision that I, I feel like I can make for plays that deserve to be there. And I think that's the best that the Hall of Fame can hope for from the voters. You've been listening to David Lennon. He's a national baseball writer for Newsday. You can give him a follow on Twitter at DP Lennon. David, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. My pleasure, Ross, and uh, happy holidays.